Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. We forget the magic that we're surrounded by because we live in it and we get used to it. But imagine if you were seeing all this for the first time, you know, imagine when you see a pod of dolphins, we're surrounded by this incredible miracle and we become inured to it as we grow up and we forget. Hi, I'm Barry, and this is the Wisdom in Action podcast, brought to you by the Small Giants Academy. Join me as I speak with brilliant people around the world who are working within different systems to create meaningful interventions for a hopeful future. That's the thing that I'm really seeking. What are the ways we need to chart our pathway forward? How do we find our way back to one another and reconnect to this precious world around us? How can we get ourselves out of the mess that we're in and leave a world that we want to gift our children? Welcome to the Wisdom in Action podcast. I'm so excited to bring you my conversation with Ben Goldsmith. I first learned about Ben's work reading his book, God is an Octopus. It is the most moving and profound book. Ben shares his journey of navigating through the unimaginable grief and loss of losing his beautiful 15-year-old daughter Iris in an accident on his family farm and how he found a way to continue on through reconnecting with nature by actively rewilding his farm in South Somerset and connecting into the greater wisdom of the world around us. Ben is a prominent figure in green investment and the rewilding movement in the UK and Europe. He hosts inspiring conversations on his podcast, Rewilding the World with Ben Goldsmith, which I highly recommend you all listen to after you've finished this one. It will give you hope. Ben is the founder and CEO of Manhattan Capital, a new energy and resource-focused investment trust. I've been drawn to Ben's work because he speaks with such a deep awareness and alignment with whole systems thinking, biodiversity as an orientation and rewilding as a distinctive pathway for us all, a pathway towards a future where we can reweave ourselves into the miracle of life on this planet. What a magnificent thought that we could be a part of the repair. Ben, thank you for joining us on the Wisdom in Action podcast. Thank you, Barry, for having me. I'm very happy to be with you. We've launched in, so we're going to have to go backwards to go forwards, but I want to have this conversation. We were just talking about how challenging it is in the corporate world or in the world of business and the economy in general to 
to actually put a value to nature. So I want to know your thoughts about it because I really struggle with this. There's a big philosophical debate that continues, quite rightly, I guess, on the idea itself that we can put a financial value on nature. How do you value something that is intrinsically priceless? How do you value the love you feel for your parents or for your kids? The idea is abhorrent to some people. But the point is we are valuing nature already in all of our decisions. We just value it at zero. So I think that um, if we're going to restore nature and if we're going to build harmony with nature in everything that we do, of course we need a kind of shift of consciousness. We need to uh, bring people's innate love of nature back to the surface. You know, it's dormant in many people. E.O. Wilson coined the term biophilia to describe the love that all people have for, for the non-human world. And of course, we've got to reawaken that biophilia in people and we've got to reconnect on an emotional or a spiritual level with the world around us. But we also need to inject some kind of sense into our economic decision-making. We need to reflect in everything that we do, the tangible value of the things that nature does for us. So in this country, for example, we get a lot of rain and most of that's in the autumn and the winter, which means that we get a quite a volatile hydrological cycle. We get flash flooding in the winter, a lot of towns, you know, Buckfastly in Devon or Keswick in the Lake District, or even big cities like Sheffield tend to suffer from really dramatic flooding in the winter. And then several weeks after the rains have stopped, we get a hosepipe ban and there's no water. Well, why is that? Well, you can partly put it down to greater heat in the atmosphere means more water, more rainfall and so on. But more importantly, we've stripped nature from the hills. And we now know, it's basic science, that if you restore nature in the hills at the top of the catchment, the landscapes become sponges and they absorb that rainfall and they release it slowly throughout the year thereby dampening the volatility in in the water cycle. You get less flooding in winter, you get less drought in the summer. That has a tangible value. You know, the the UK spends billions on flood defense and cleaning up after floods every single year. So if you can restore nature in the right places and reduce flooding, as well as reducing drought, you've created value. So that's starting to happen now. Local authorities and the Environment Agency and flood insurers are starting to pay landowners in certain parts of the country to do rewilding, to rebuild soils, to store water on their land in the form of wetland creation and so on, because it all helps with reducing flooding. So there is a market for this kind of flood mitigation that is now growing up in the UK, which involves putting a price on nature. And that's one of a whole like whole ream of examples where people are starting to recognize the real value of nature in their decision making. And, and we need this to happen. And so, of course, that creates opportunities for the financial markets and for banks and for corporations and so on. And I think that's all a good thing. I think it's a good thing. And I think it's really tricky territory when we have to put value on the sacred. But as you said, currently, there is no seat at the table for nature whatsoever. It is an extraction model and we're here to take and none of the externalities are factored in to the economy as it is. And we talk a lot at Small Giants Academy about the next economy, which is really just like a proposition, an idea, like what could be an emergent economy that would have nature at the table? And I think it is tricky, but I agree with you that it has to be done and how to do it with the highest integrity in service of a whole system's understanding. Like you have such a profound understanding of biodiversity when 
I've always had the intuition that the purpose of capital really is to be in service of life. And I wasn't raised like that. I was raised that if you were to ask what is the purpose of capital, it's more capital, profit. So we need new answers to old questions, but I wish I had your brain and your knowledge and your plug into the natural world because I think understanding the whole system, like you just said, about the catchments in the mountains and the fact that we are nature, that we can't just keep extracting. We live in these living systems and we've taken ourselves out. I think that an economy that doesn't have that ecological awareness and that understanding of whole systems dynamics will just continue to extract and get it wrong. I think on those terms in which free marketeers and conservatives tend to operate, there is an illogic to the way in which society bears the burden for pollution created by private businesses. Now, if you believe in free and fair markets, then you have to believe in regulations to protect them. If I'm a factory pig farmer and I'm dumping uh, a slurry into the water courses and poisoning the natural environment, killing off the fishery on which other businesses depend, if I'm polluting the air and creating health problems in the local community, and yet I'm not paying the cost of cleaning up all of that mess, then I'm getting a free ride from society. And that's not very Adam Smith, in my opinion. So a lot of conservatives and free marketeers talk a good game about free markets and fair markets without actually living it. And so I think on their own terms, the idea of the polluter paying for the pollution they cause, the idea of internalizing all externalities is a very conservative thing to want to do. And once you do that, of course, it opens up a whole bunch of opportunities for investing in solutions and in restoration. So I think corporations, good regulation and financial markets have a massive role to play in fixing all of this. It just it can't be left to philanthropy. There isn't enough philanthropy to fix nature. But I think that the deeper point that you just made is one around connection with nature and understanding of nature. The, the fact is our relationship with nature is still profoundly mysterious. We really don't know much of what goes on around us. Science unravels little tiny pieces of the, the mystery for us each year. We now know, for example, that certain kinds of beans will emit a kind of chemical scream when they're attacked by aphids in order to summon aphid-eating wasps in to protect them. We know that acacia trees in East Africa will warn each other chemically when they're being nibbled by herbivores such as giraffes. If I'd been on this kind of a discussion 10 years ago and I'd suggested that the trees in a forest are perpetually communicating with each other via a great wood-wide web, a kind of micro-rizal fungal network beneath the soil, and not just communicating with each other, but passing each other nutrition and so on, you'd have considered me mad. But science has now discovered that this is reality. The trees are talking to each other the whole time. And they talk to us. We don't know why, but when we walk in the woods, we breathe in compounds that are emitted by the trees that lower our heart rate. They reduce our blood pressure. They make us feel happy. You know, why do the trees need to communicate with us in this way? Why does walking in the woods have this effect on us? We don't know. Do they love us? Why not? We don't know. What we do know is that it works. And so the Japanese health service are now prescribing forest bathing as, as a mainstream activity for helping people get better. They've shown empirically that patients who can simply see nature, the geometric geometry of nature out the window of their hospital room will recover faster. We know that prisoners, if they're able to get their hands in the soil just a few hours each week outside under the sun, we know that they're less likely to reoffend. We know that kids with ADHD and other issues, give them a little bit of time in nature and it works wonders. 
We don't really understand what our connection is or why it works in the way it does. It's a great mystery, but it's a beautiful one. And that's the place in which we're going to solve this, I think, is a reconnection with this great apparition that shines all around us. That's how we're going to reinsert ourselves back into the miracle. So yes, we need a shift on, on the level of consciousness, but we also need a shift in the way our markets operate and the way finance operates and the way economic decisions are taken and so on. And I, I feel like both of those things are starting to happen. Oh, I love that you say that. I'm just really moved by how you frame things. I just came back from a big trip in Scandinavia where we were really deep diving on not only just the Scandinavian secret, like how have they done what they've done there and, and where are they at with preparedness for something that we were exploring called the meta crisis, which was really focused on the top 10 existential threats to humanity. and. It was such a heavy trip. It was more than the heart can really take and the head. My brain was on fire when I came back and I was processing such kind of enormous grief. And I had your incredible book, God is an Octopus. I'm carrying it around with me all the time like a talisman. It's such a gift and I don't even know how you were able to write it, let alone speak the way you're speaking about nature and, you know, you were alluding to almost like divine consciousness and you've suffered such enormous loss in your life, which is the beginning of the book. It was the grief of your story that I really connected with when I got back because I think I'd lost faith. And you'd be forgiven for losing faith if you do the work that we do and just looking at the state of the world. You quote that we're a part of a grand mystery that's beyond our ability to understand, divine consciousness. And then you ask the question at the end, which is really my question all the time. I've never done plant medicine. And you talk about a plant medicine journey that was part of your healing. Um, why doesn't she or it stop us? Why do we need to get to the brink. Like I, I think about that all the time. I'm like, if there's this divine consciousness and we are nature, why doesn't the divine consciousness stop us from going as far as we've gone? I also don't know how I'm sitting here discussing this stuff with you and, you know, go about my day. I laugh. I have a pretty rich and fulfilled life. I have other kids. I make, I'm actively involved in the things I'm doing. And I don't know how, you know, I, I, losing a kid is a thing you, you, you imagine you'll never survive. Although in the instant it happened, somewhere in my mind, I knew I would have to find a way because I have other people who depend on me. I just didn't know how. And what I found is that in the darkness, you know, a darkness which engulfs you like no other, a sort of a third eye opens up somewhere and I found that my love of nature suddenly had meaning for me. I knew I'd love wildlife and nature since I was a kid. This was my obsession as a teenager, building ponds and putting up bird boxes and the kind of books I read and the documentaries I watched and the, the way I spent my time. I wrote a letter age 13 to the Country Life magazine, which is a magazine for old fogies who live in the countryside, saying I thought their readership lacked imagination on the topic of reintroducing wild boar and other missing species to our landscape. I got the star letter. I mean, I was obsessed. And it became clear to me in the days, weeks, and months after losing my daughter Iris in that accident that my love of nature was not just like stamp collecting, a kind of hobby or an interest. I understood that this was a much deeper 
connection, a deeper calling, because it carried me during that very difficult time. I mean, on a kind of day-to-day level, every kind of minute was hard to get through. I'm sure lots of people listening to this have experienced deep grief. It's really hard to get through each day. And anything that makes it possible to move through the day without giving up is very valuable, whether it's just a cup of tea with your face in the sunshine, noticing the birdsong around you, You know, I went for a walk with my wife two or three times a day just to walk in silence or kind of babbling inanities, questions to which there really were no answers. And swimming, there was a bend in the river just down from my house where I swim and just noticing the dragonflies and the kind of humming of life all around me, being in the water. These things just helped make me feel okay. And I felt held, you know, in, in that time. And it was in nature that I found for the first time a sense of relief and even joy. Beavers are a very important species and they're extinct in Britain. They have been carefully reintroduced, often without permits in different parts of this country. And as if a kind of gift from God, a pair of beavers appeared in our land three months after I lost Iris. And finding the signs that there were beavers there, probably for the first time in five, six hundred years, with my two young teenage sons, was a moment of incredible joy. And I think it was the first time I felt the feeling of great, intense joy, you know, in that time. So I, um, I would simply say that whatever it is all around us has a deep connection with us. We are it. And it is alive. And people feel it instinctively. They don't know it, but they feel it in some level. They know it. And that is the key to getting people to involve themselves in restoring it. And why does it allow us to do what we're doing? I think that's kind of an impossible question to answer because I think the mystery is far beyond our ability to understand. I think we have some kind of free will. And I think in a way we exist within some kind of a beautiful cosmic dream in which everything is just going to be okay one way or another. And I don't think we can grasp what that means or how, but I just have a tremendous sense that somehow things just happen as they're meant to. That doesn't mean we're meant to sit back and do nothing ourselves because I believe that it all matters deeply and that we're meant to play our part and meant to do good things and meant to, the poet Rumi said, follow the pull of the thing that you love, you know? And I think that if you follow that pull of whatever it is you love, I think you end up doing good things and feeling happy and feeling fulfilled and doing the right thing. And I feel that within that context, things will just somehow be okay. And I don't know what necessarily that means, but I um, I had never had any experience with plant medicine, with ayahuasca. I, I was never really one of the kind of cool druggy kids growing up. I'd never done any of these things recreationally. You know, a little bit of pot, that's all. I used to consider it one of my vices, and now I consider it something that's quite important to keeping me grounded, you know, periodically through the year, I have a little bit of pot here and there. It's quite mainstream. In the United States, people take gummies all the time. And for me, it's like having like a glass of red wine at dinner or something. The idea of being in a completely altered state of consciousness is something that was very anathema to me, especially when I was in such a vulnerable state a year after losing my daughter. But after a year of searching for some kind of ongoing trace of her, searching for answers, the questions I'd never really considered in my life. What does it mean to die? Does some part of us live on? Is there some greater consciousness? Is there some grand plan? These kind of things we're talking about now had meant nothing to me until that time. So I had this kind of, I mean, yeah, the opening of some kind of third eye, I think. Like, my God, what are we part of? There's something amazing here. There's, 
you know, death may not be what we think it is. And at the end of that year, various people had suggested to me that if I was going to get closer to finding out some kind of a psychedelic journey would be a pretty good way to go about it. So I undertook ayahuasca over two nights in a kind of professional and guided way with three people that I trust and very close with. Well, it was quite a thing. It was quite a thing. It's pretty heavy, but it's hard to translate what you experience, except to say that you feel engulfed with a sense that we are part of something vast and powerful and benevolent and loving and beautiful and that it manifests all the time around us in the nature that we see and that we spend our time in and whatever that is i don't know this is all very new to me and these things have been hard to translate into language forever let alone for someone who never thought about them until you know a couple of years earlier i'm not religious i I was christened and confirmed as a kid i come from jewish heritage on my father's side but I haven't had some kind of a religious conversion. I got christened because it gave me time off school. But I, I certainly believe now that there is some great consciousness, some great mind at large that is dreaming all of this up. So good. I just want to listen to you talk. Um, even though I've read your book, I'm like, I want to read it a second time. And I've listened to your podcast like voraciously when I got back because there's something about the door that opened in your consciousness and the way that you speak. I told you my kids are the same age Iris was when you lost her and we have a family farm and the kids ride the buggy around like lunatics all the time and I feel like in many ways I grew up with a lot of love and I should have more faith and more trust in what you're talking about or some contact with what you're talking about and maybe I do but the kind of state of the world right now and the things that I know about the state of biodiversity. 19 biological, ecological systems in Australia are collapsed or declared collapsing, which is a diabolical state for this country to be in. And I came home from this big trip about like it was really go home and hug your children and then your book was like this unbelievable gift of love and vision. You know, I was watching dam removals in Europe and the revolution of all these dams being undone and the environment being set free from the shackles that we've put it under and just felt like that was happening to my own heart and my own soul. And I'm kind of an action person. I can hear the wisdom of what you're saying and we talk about wisdom and action all the time at Small Giants Academy and that's what I'm I'm talking to you for, to get that wisdom and move with that into action And I can always feel myself wanting to do, but there's something you're saying about a deep trust and a knowing and the benevolent, loving container, like that bigger piece that we're a part of. And I find it hard to tap into, but I definitely feel like your work really resonated with me because there's a being a part of the repair. So I want to just get a couple of concepts down because I think that we've had a big conversation already and I just want to take it back to what happened after Iris died. I describe it to people as you walked through your grief into nature and into your own rewilding your family farm. What did you do in the farm and what is rewilding? What does that even mean? Because I know there's even controversy around the topic. 
Yeah, so what I remembered was that Iris and her siblings and their little gang of friends used to spend all of their time around the edges of the farm, around the pond or places where there was nature. Because when we'd arrived there, we felt a tremendous pressure that we must just farm, we must produce food. You know, there's a quite a strong cultural emphasis in this country on producing food in every square inch of the land. Now, that's why even in places that are really terrible for farming, in our national parks, for example, if you go to those places, you'll find no wildlife, just sheep and sheep and sheep. In the Lake District, the Yorkshire Dales, we're in a landscape called Selwood in South Somerset, which was once a great wood pasture that no one bothered ripping up and turning into farmland because the soil is heavy clay. It's almost impossible to farm it productively. But with the arrival of steam machinery, it was turned into the kind of typical British patchwork quilt of green fields and endless cows up to their knees in mud. And I arrived there and I felt I ought to farm this place. And I, I put a, had a pretty good run at it, but it's just really, really hard to farm that kind of land. We have five grades in this country, one to five. Grade five is the least productive. In fact, the least productive 20% of our country produces less than 1% of the food in spite of massive efforts to extract what we can from it. So what that meant was we created a few edges and a few kind of ponds and things for nature, but fundamentally it stayed a farm. You know? And it just occurred to me after Iris died, why wouldn't I just allow nature to run riot all over this farm, turn the whole place wild in the way that certain corners had been where she spent her time with her pony, with her friends. The inspiration for me was a place called NEP, a 3,000 acre rewilding project in Sussex which has sought to restore natural processes in the landscape using domestic proxies for the original wild animals that roamed Britain before people. So for the aurochs or the wild cattle, they have native Old English longhorns. For the tarpan, the ancient British wild horse, they have Exmoor ponies. For the wild boar, which has been extinct for several hundred years, but which happily is now back in parts of Britain, they had Tamworth pigs. And what they found was that the kind of mosaic, shape-shifting, semi-open woodland that these animals engineered was far more vibrant, far more abundant in every kind of nature and wildlife than the traditional closed canopy woodland that we consider to be wild in this country. They really turned conservation on its head. I mean, they've got the greatest density of breeding songbirds of any place in the whole of Britain after just 20 years at NEP. They've written the book. The book is a huge bestseller. And what they found is that sunlit a broken up sort of shape-shifting woodland pastures or wildwoods are far better because of the natural processes that create them. You know, these keystone species, the pig turning the soil, the cattle browsing, grazing, trampling. Now, these are all descendants of species that have wandered northwestern Europe for millennia. They now have beavers back at NEP as well. And so NEP has become an extraordinary story and we simply emulated that, which also enabled me to tell my neighbors, hey, don't worry, I'm still farming. The old farming types around who would have disapproved of an end of farming, I said, well, look, I'm still farming. I've got longhorn cattle, just fewer of them, and they're free roaming. We don't have fencing anymore. We ripped out all of our fencing, but they have collars. No fence, it's called, a Norwegian tech business. And these collars tell us where they are. They give the cattle direction themselves on where the boundaries are. If they get too close to the boundary, which you set using an app on your phone, they get a little shock or they get a beep and then a shock. So it's an amazing technological innovation, which is very helpful for projects like mine, where we want the cattle free roaming, eat where they want, sleep where they want, roam where they want. And what's been exciting is that nature has started to recover in the most extraordinary way. We have glowworms back now at night in our farm. Wow. Yeah, from nowhere, not reintroduced by Why me. Why do you have glowworms? Do you know? We think probably must have been in the landscape, tucked away in tiny numbers somewhere. 
and they've proliferated above where the beavers have created a ribbon wetland along the bottom of the valley. So beavers are another vital keystone species. Alongside these native cattle, alongside these native Tamworth pigs, the beavers are creating something extraordinary by damming up the little streams and creeks. They create these incredible meandering ribbon wetlands, which are sunlit because they cut the trees, which brings the light down into the wetland. And so what it turns out is that glowworms love sunlit, scrubby, permanent pools. So we're full of glowworms. And the magic is such, the bird song is so intense, the wildflowers in spring so riotous that neighbors have been tempted to start doing the same, especially in an environment where it's almost impossible to make a living farming in Selwood. So we now have five neighbors with several thousand acres between us, all rewilding in the same way. And we've just submitted an application to the government for a landscape recovery program covering 12,000 acres, 30 farms that will all go back to nature in this way. So what is rewilding? Are we really rewilding there? Or is this silvopasture, you know, cattle in trees? Or is it wood pasture, which is an older English term? Is it, you know, what is it? Well, it's recovering nature as far as is feasible in a particular place. That might be a window box on the 43rd floor of a tower block in Camden in London. You know, we're gonna have native wildflowers in our window box to attract in pollinating insects. Well, I think that's rewilding. It might be pockets of scrub in, in London's Regent's Park or Hyde Park. I chaired the London Rewilding Task Force and we're weaving wild nature wherever and however we can through the fabric of our capital city in a pretty amazing way. There are some big rewilding projects around the periphery of the city which have been connected with little corridors and veins of nature along canals and railway lines and roads. So we're not going to be Alaska in Somerset. No, we'll be as far along that spectrum as we can get bearing in mind where we are, who lives there, how the landscape has historically been used and so on. So I'm not fussy about the term. I want to pause and just say everybody asks, where is the hope? But where is the hope? When you look across the different collapsing systems of our time and just looking at the war in the Middle East right now and the unbearable pain we inflict upon each other and the natural world, which you write about in your incredible book, And this is the good news story. This is the hope, our ability to participate in the repair and the genuine returns that it will give us of a life lived, like, what did you say before? That's a beautiful quote, isn't it? That we reweave ourselves back into the miracle. We forget that we're surrounded by a miracle. I just gave you a glimpse a moment ago of my little one-year-old boy, Vinny. It's a blessing if there ever was one, has brought such joy and happiness into my family and just reflected whilst out walking with him the other day in a little carrier attached to me and we're walking in a a beautiful autumn morning and it's all new to him you know he's never seen a hawthorn bush just glowing red with berries you know draped with little tiny spider's webs that are all glistening because of the morning dew he's never seen something so beautiful he's never seen a massive oak tree he's never seen ducks startled flying off the pond and i was showing him all these things and i realized you know we forget the magic that we're surrounded by because we live in it and we get used to it but imagine if you were seeing all this for the first time imagine when you see a pod of dolphins we're surrounded by this incredible miracle and we become inured to it as we grow up and we forget And I think that the challenge we face is inserting ourselves in all senses, but most of all, our systems into natural ones, into this miracle as frictionlessly as we can. We've placed ourselves since the Enlightenment outside of the miracle, and we need to put ourselves back into the miracle. It's it's no coincidence that 80% of the world's remaining intact ecosystems 
are in the stewardship of indigenous communities around the world. Now, I know that's, a, a, let's say, First Nation communities or let's say shamanistic communities. In other words, communities for whom harmony with nature is absolutely central to their spiritual and their practical lives. That is something that we need to learn from. We need to put ourselves back inside the miracle. I love it. And when you talk about your beautiful little boy and I think about my kids, one of the most powerful concepts I had never heard of until I read your book, but it's a scientific concept around shifting baselines. And I've been talking about it nonstop for the last three weeks because I'm like, we don't want to shift the baseline. So can you explain what a shifting baseline is and what that means to each new generation? Yeah, I think the thing we've lost most of all is this abundance of nature and wildlife that once existed. We really can't fathom how much wildlife and nature there was in this world. You know, in East Anglia, in Britain, there were rivers of birds in the sky, literally rivers. The skies were darkened for days on end, migrating geese and wading birds and things moving from north to south to north. You read the menus from some of those medieval banquets in the 13th, 14th, 15th century. They were eating like a thousand spoonbills, you know, like unbelievable abundance. The eels were so numerous that the vast seven estuary in Western Britain seemed to some observers as if there was no water. It was just eels moving out. And where they were going, well, of course, they didn't know. We now know that they were going to breed in the Sargasso Sea off Bermuda. The abundance of life, and another statistic that I find fascinating, the River Tweed is famous in Scotland for its salmon. Well, the total salmon catch on the River Tweed in 1822 was a thousand times greater than the total salmon catch on that same river, the Tweed, in 1922. And in 1922, the total salmon catch on the Tweed was a thousand times greater than all the salmon caught in all the British Isles in 2022. So we're talking about a catastrophic loss of abundance. And what's gone with that is a loss of the awareness of how abundant nature used to be in, in a phenomenon that's known as shifting baseline syndrome. Each passing generation yearns for nature to be as rich and vibrant as it was when we were children. What we don't realize is that when we were children, it was already incredibly reduced versus what previous generations experienced. So therefore, with each passing generation, our expectations of abundance diminish. But the good news is that abundance recovers incredibly fast. The recovery of nature has been really extraordinary where they've created, for example, new marine protected areas. Here in Europe, you know, there's one marine protected area that I happen to know around Cabrera Island in Mallorca in Spain's Balearics. You know, eight years after they protected from all kinds of fishing, a relatively modest area that had very little life remaining in it. You now have seagrasses and turtles and extraordinary abundance of fish and huge groupers just looking at you when you're snorkeling from the top of the water column all the way down to the bottom. In fact, the upwelling of life has been so extraordinary that fishermen are now catching more fish in the surrounding area than they have for decades. They've started calling these marine protected areas fish banks or replenishment zones. What Michael Bloomberg has described as the greatest J-curve you can find in the universe is the recovery of nature if you just take your foot off its throat and allow natural processes to play out. NEP is an example of this. Cabrera Island is an example of this. The question is, how do we pay for the restoration of nature? How do we make it happen? Because it does cost money. There's an opportunity cost. You need to get the sheep off the hillside. You need to stop the bottom trawling, which has gone on for generations in a particular area. You need to pay for that opportunity cost. 
I feel like sometimes that's, well, not sometimes. I know that's where a lot of the controversy is around rewilding. It's like, well, we can't go back and don't be nostalgic. And also, what about jobs? That happened in Australia. The last election was a climate election. And I think it happened finally because the case for jobs in the renewables transition was made. The case for getting off our addiction to coal was made in terms of job creation. And the next election really needs to be a nature and climate election where we shift the cultural narrative to weave ourselves back into the miracle, if you will, but maybe that's the mythopoetic level of this conversation. There's a kind of nuts and bolts on the ground. How do we shift the culture? Because a lot of people can't even imagine a glow worm. Yeah. I think the economic challenges is easily surmountable because a lot of the activities which are driving nature destruction are simply not economic without lavish government subsidies. I mean, take fishing on the high seas. It just simply doesn't work without massive government subsidies. Governments around the world hand out $35 billion in subsidies to the fishing industry. Well, why? You know, without the fish collapsing, there aren't enough fish. Why are we subsidizing these fishing boats? Take sheep farming in British national parks. Well, there's 40 million sheep in Britain or thereabouts. They're not economic. We export more than 80% of the lamb that is produced. We don't need it for our own consumption here. And the average sheep farming business derives 90% of its revenues from taxpayer subsidies. Now, it was Warren Buffett who famously said, it's only when the tide goes out that you see who's been swimming naked. Well, a lot of these destructive activities are supported with lavish government subsidies. So if you can shift those subsidies to reward people for delivering public goods, things that the public demonstrably needs for its ongoing prosperity, soil, watercourses, pollinators, fish stocks. If we support through our government tax dollars the activities which restore these things, then you, you completely change the incentives and you completely change the way the land is managed. So to, to take the case of the British National Parks, subsidies are being withdrawn, the tide is going out, and the new system is called environmental land management. Farming businesses will be entitled to the same or more amount of public money if they deliver the restoration of soil and nature. And in places like our British national parks, that really means far fewer sheep and a wilder approach to land management. And various studies have shown that when you adopt those approaches, you end up with higher net incomes. You know, the average sheep farmer is taking home only seven or eight thousand pounds a year on the bottom line. It's not a living wage at all. Higher incomes double the number of jobs, and tenfold the participation of people in the land in the form of volunteering, for example. So the evidence suggests overwhelmingly that wilder approaches are more rational from an economic perspective. That doesn't get you around the cultural issue. You know, people think of their culture as something that's gone on forever. Now, of course, there's always been change. You know, if you if you'd crossed Kent in the southeast of Britain, in the 1930s, it was all hops for the beer industry. Well, there's no hops now. Now it's fruit and veg. These things change all the time. When Beatrix Potter famously bought her place in the Lake District, there were half a million sheep in all of the British Isles. There's now somewhere between 30 and 40 million, depending on the time of year. Change has been a constant in our landscapes, but each generation imagines the way they do things to be the culture, the permanent culture, and they fight tooth and nail for that change not to happen. So that is the challenge, is how do you get people comfortable with the idea of adapting and changing what they do in order to allow nature to recover and so that they can have a different way of life? And I think the answer to that is to have examples that they can visit. One of their neighbors starts with native cattle, fewer, more nature, 
payments for flood mitigation alongside the payments they get from the sale of food, and it becomes less scary, and suddenly they start to follow. So I think the best thing is to do is to have working examples in which people haven't lost their jobs, they haven't been cleared from the land. In fact, they have a better life, they have more employees, they have more volunteers coming to their land, they have a richer life. I think that is the way you change things, is through people seeing others doing it in their neighbourhood. I love that. And functional models, because I think it's been incredibly hard to find functional models because either the government's subsidising it or people who have money to, like, I think the last 20 years, Australia's far behind. I just, that's something that's a true fact. So I was so inspired by your book and the podcast because the podcast highlights all these really ambitious, really visionary and thrilling projects. And I felt like I could breathe for the first time in a long time because there are so many people in the world who are working on the repair of these ecosystems. And one of the things that I think is a thread here that is very deep and is part of the mystical aspect that you're talking about, but it's happening in the culture and we're seeing it with war and conflict, is the idea of borders and boundaries. Like it's fascinating to me that you've got your cattle on this app so that they know where the line is because we don't think about it that much. But You talk about flight paths for birds, where they mate to where they nest. They don't care about human borders and human boundaries and nation states. It's a whole planetary biosphere. We're part of a whole system dynamic and we have to repair flight pathways and waterways. That's why I'm like obsessed with the dam removals because it's like watching another hundred acres get restored for salmon to return. And you were saying that in the past, Europe lived off the bounty of the riverways. People didn't eat from the ocean. Only people who lived on the ocean were eating from the ocean. And now we've even depleted the ocean. So this story pivot, what I love about it is it's whole systems, whole ecologies. It's you in Britain and me in Australia. We have a connection. We share water. We share air. It's that awareness that we are all connected and that all broken systems break all other systems. And it's the relationship between these ecologies that we have to start to connect with and it's vital for our survival. But I love that there's no virtue signalling in this conversation. When you talk about it, there's no intergenerational conflict in the conversation. It comes back to we all love seeing and being in living systems that are thriving. It's that awe and that wonder lands for all of us that's what I felt that's what I've been feeling in your work I was like oh you've reminded me that these systems can repair and that it can be okay and that there is hope and that there is something to connect with that isn't permanently broken nature really wants to recover and it does dramatically if we allow it And recovering nature not only makes us feel happy, it gives us tremendous joy. Nothing has ever given me such a sense of joy and meaning as I found with the project that I'm working on in Somerset with my own rewilding and the surrounding landscape. But it also pays to restore nature, not just in the long term, in the short term. There are a suite of markets growing up which reward nature recovery. My hope is that restoring nature on a grand scale becomes a kind of asset class in which people can invest their money. 
And I think, as you said at the start of our conversation, the purpose of capital is to be in service of life. And I think that is starting to become a reality. I've launched a, a vehicle here in this country called Natagal, which is the Danish for Nightingale, with Charlie Burrell, who's the owner of the, the NEP rewilding project that I've discussed. And um, our goal is to create a, a vehicle of rewilding. Ben, you're an absolute gift. You're my new hero. I am just so, so grateful for this conversation and more deeply for all the work that you're doing. It's an example to all of us and everyone should read your book and listen to the podcast and get behind the work you're doing and do that where you live, where you love, because these are replicable projects and ideas happening all around the world. Barry, you're far too kind and thank you so much. I'm really happy to have got to know you. Yeah, I'm just feeling really um, moved and really amazed by Ben. I've really been completely absorbed by the work that he's doing and the degree to which he can articulate this incredibly hopeful vision of the journey we could all go on, whether it's like planting native flowers in your windowsill if you've just got a windowsill, or rewilding your landscape, rewilding the world. It includes us in the miracle and the mystery. We can't give up and we can't walk with just sadness and urgency and fear. Actually, I've just been anxious and fearful for too long now. And I know that that, that's a dead end. No good ideas, no good creativity comes from that. And so this incredible book, God is an Octopus, has really taught me something. I don't, it's just the beginning of this journey, but I'm so grateful that I can go on that journey with all of you and we can all be inspired we just have to reweave ourselves back into the miracle of life on this planet this episode was part of a special 10-part season where i've been exploring systems thinking in the meta crisis but we also have an incredible catalog of episodes from our previous podcast dumbo feather I speak with some of my heroes like Esther Perel, Nate Hagens, Brene Brown, Johan Hari and more. So if you want to listen, they are there on the Wisdom in Action podcast, available on your favourite podcast app. If you want to turn this wisdom into action, go to smallgiants.com.au for more information about the incredible programs and events we run. You can also find pieces of wisdom that you can turn into action for each episode at smallgiants.com.au forward slash wisdom and action, along with the show notes. And of course, I absolutely love hearing from you. You can connect with me on Instagram at Berry Feather, follow the podcast at Wisdom and Action, or write to us at podcast at smallgiants.com.au.